welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Critical Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, I hope you guys like the new intro to the Q&A videos. That's going to be our new intro for these. I also did a new intro for my Thursday videos, which you'll see then. Uh, all part of, in fact, the final parts of my sort of new or updated or, re, you know, refurbished uh, branding for my channel and for my website. That's also got a new theme and, and sort of look and feel to it. And um, I think the, the very last thing I need to do is, is do the same thing for my podcast website. But everything else graphically and all that's pretty, um, pretty even with everything else. And I'm pretty happy with it. So I hope you guys like it too. Also, uh, this week, a uh, pretty informative and important video for Scientology watchers out there about updates from inside the world of Scientology uh, that I don't think you're going to get elsewhere. So um, I hope you guys checked out that video. And also, this uh, podcast this week was a talk with an uh, attorney, actually, about um, the Scientology justice system, which we have commented on here many times, answered a lot of questions about it. And I uh, thought we'd do a whole podcast kind of breaking the whole thing down and looking at, you know, and even then, an hour talking about it, we still didn't get to every possible comment or critique or, or permutation of what we could have talked about with the whole system. But we certainly covered some very important uh, areas on it, including some things I've never talked about before. So I hope you will check that podcast out too. And finally, uh, the last thing I wanted to say is, um, you know, the people who signed on with Patreon to help support my channel and help keep me doing what I'm doing here, I cannot give enough shout outs and thank yous to all of you for doing that. Um, this studio space and, and the new uh, apartment that we sort of moved into here in order to be able to have this is, is not yet, we haven't quite hit that target that I actually need to hit in order to make this a firm reality. So I hope that some of you out there who are enjoying my channel and uh, enjoying the content here will consider signing up on Patreon to help support what I'm doing. Now let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Matt Lesner. What is the training that Scientologists take in order to be able to watch content like yours and not be swayed while investigating the suppressive person content? All right, so basically what you're asking is uh, how is it that Scientologists actually, and especially Sea Org members, can watch my channel and not be affected by it <laughs> as far as creating doubts and reservations and problems in their head about it? Well. For one thing, I can tell you that a lot of Scientologists who come to my channel do get fairly triggered. Some of them leave comments, even independent Scientologists who aren't part of the official church. And that's fine. They can leave critical comments as long as they're not, you know, name-calling or, or being a jerk about it. I'm, I'm always willing to entertain alternate ideas and points of view about things I say. Um, but as far as uh, hardcore Scientologists, I mean, some of them have come to my channel and they have changed their minds about things, and they've contacted me afterwards saying, you know, I watched your videos and really got me thinking about some things, and now I'm not so sure that the Scientology stuff is really what it should be. So in that regard, I have had some success, which was kind of the original point of doing this channel. Uh, it changed over the years. I'm not really trying to uh, appeal to Scientologists directly now, uh, like I was with my first videos, but it still happens. Now, as far as the training goes, there is a course that almost all Scientologists do called the PTS 
slash SP course, or the Potential Trouble Source and Suppressive Person course. And it's how to confront and shatter suppression. And of course, Scientologists these days don't confront and shatter suppression, they run away from it. They just avoid it like the plague. They act like it doesn't exist. They don't engage with it. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Because the questions that us former members and critics ask are questions they cannot answer honestly and deal with the honest answers. So they have to run away from that. And we'll talk a little bit more in a second about some of the mechanisms behind that. But the training of this course is done in such a way that it teaches you that people who are anti-Scientology are, anti are also antisocial. They are suppressive persons. They're an antisocial personality. They are merchants of chaos. These are all terms Hubbard came up with over the years for people who were uh, critical of his work. He didn't like that. Hubbard had a very vindictive nature. He, didn't, he, he wasn't a live and let live, turn the other cheek kind of guy. And he inculcates or educates Scientologists to uh, also follow in his footsteps that way. And that's how you get Scientologists who are willing uh, to go do fair game actions on people, uh, treat people like crap if they, you know, don't follow the party line anymore. Uh, you know, as I've gone on at length, it's about the us versus them mentality. That's part of every destructive cult. Scientology does a really good job of it. This course teaches that um, the SPs are, are antisocial. It teaches that they are low-toned on the tone scale, on Scientology's scale of emotions, which I'm, I'm putting a video on together right now. Um, that means that because they're low-toned, that means that they lie consistently. That's their way of, that's, that's, that's what Scientologists are told to think about people like me. Uh, or Leah, or Mike Rinder, or other, you know, Tony Ortega, or any, any number of critics you want to name. We're all liars. We all have axes to grind. We're all people who have done morally reprehensible things, and because we've done those morally reprehensible things, according to L. Ron Hubbard, that is what causes us to be anti-Scientology in the first place. So it's really, we're only speaking out of our own guilty consciences that we criticize Scientology in any way. That is Hubbard's dogma, and that's what Scientologists learn to believe. That's what they're indoctrinated in. So when they, when they have that, that filter in place, and that's just one of many. I mean, there's, other, there's a lot of other information on this course about handling black propaganda and how uh, people who spread black propaganda are you know, like gossip mongers, and they, you know, and again, not to be trusted. These are people who do not have truth in mind. They do not have anybody's best interests in mind except their own. And they are, at their core, scared, frightened little people who tell all these lies in an effort to distract and get people away from Scientology because, according to Hubbard, Scientology is the one and only true path to eternal spiritual freedom and and salvation. So anybody who would be against that is clearly psychotic. Duh. So that's the attitude that Scientologists have and bring to any, when they, when they are confronted with anti-Scientology information or information that tries to clarify what Scientology is all about, because I I'll characterize myself as anti-Scientology, but it's not really the point to, to be against. The point is to try to just talk about the truth, and the truth is Scientology is bad stuff. 
So, um, so their whole attitude about anybody you know who's you know who who does that is that they are lying, antisocial, criminal scumbags. So it's pretty easy when you create that frame of mind in somebody's head for them to just ignore or uh, not give any credibility or credence to what you have to say. I mean, would you listen to what Charles Manson has to say about anything, <laughs> you know, or Jeffrey Dahmer or Hitler? Uh, no, of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't. I mean, you, you know, who would? Who, who would give a crap about what any of those people have to say about anything? Even if Charles Manson didn't like the weather that day, I'd probably be like, well, good. You know, <laughs> like, I hope it rains on your head, you, you evil person, you know? So, um, so that's the kind of attitude they come at this with. And the people at the Office of Special Affairs who are tasked with looking at N-theta on the internet, i.e. stuff like mine, that's what Scientologists call N-theta, bad, bad news, lies, vicious nonsense. Um, they are indoctrinated even further into this belief. They're further indoctrinated that uh, into Hubbard's conspiratorial view of the world. As, uh, as I've talked about in whole videos, the, the Hubbard created a, an incredibly complex conspiracy theory that has Scientology at the center of it being attacked and beleaguered, you know, on all ends by these dark forces that seek to control this planet and the population on it. And that, um, and that they are actively trying to create a planet of sheep and, you know, mind-numb, zombie-implanted, you know, people who won't question and won't fight back and won't critically think about anything. So, uh, so Hubbard says Scientologists are the only ones who have an inkling of what the real truth is, and these dark forces are arrayed against Scientology to hold back and, and suppress the truth. And so when somebody like me goes to the dark side, quote-unquote, that means that I've sided with those dark forces. So the OSA staff members have a whole nother level of, of indoctrination and reinforcement that needs to be busted through before you could get them to even consider that you're talking about something like the truth. So that's, that's the training they get. Now mentally, there's a lot of things going on up in the, up in the brain that, that actually prevent a person from being able to easily critically think or in, even intake information such as mine when they are um, so heavily indoctrinated against receiving that kind of information. I'm talking about here uh, one mechanism, for example, one of the stronger ones is, is motivated reasoning where you, uh, and it's exactly like it sounds. I mean, it's reasoning, but it's motivated. It's motivated by some particular goal. So rather than just looking at a pile of information and being able to intake all of it and then prioritize and sort it out and figure out what's what, you don't even intake certain parts of this information because you're motivated not to, basically, because it doesn't, it somehow attacks your biases or your prejudices or it somehow um, you're able to filter it out because it doesn't serve your preconceived ideas or notions. We all do this all the time. No one's immune from this. Just knowing about it is not enough proofing up to be able to, to easily combat it. It's how our brains work. We want information that confirms what we already think and what we already feel like we know is the truth. So we only receive information that, that reinforces that, and we actively block information that doesn't. It takes gr a great deal of effort 
to overcome that. It takes a conscientious effort to do so. And that's one of the things about critical thinking that makes it so hard to do and why it's not really super popular either because it runs smack up against all of our prejudices and, and the things that emotionally make us feel good or feel right or feel true or feel like it, you know, I'm, I'm making a difference in the world or I'm doing all the good things that I'm supposed to be doing because I, I do this and I do this and I do this. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you are politically. It doesn't matter where you are religiously or morally or ethically. We all think this way. So we all justify and rationalize our actions and, and, the, and our beliefs and, we, the, and the information that comes into us that challenges those beliefs or those actions or those uh, ideas we have, um, we are not, we're not down with accepting those right away. It take, like I said, it takes a real effort to, to be able to do that. So that is also, in the end, all that indoctrination Hubbard does plays on those kind of mechanisms. It gives people in Scientology all kinds of reasons to not believe anybody except L. Ron Hubbard or Scientologists in good standing like David Miscavige, right? It gives them a whole heap of reasons to believe that stuff and to nullify anything that is not that, okay? So that's kind of the simplicity of it. I hope that answers your question. Matt. I got out before Debbie Cook's email and court testimony and did not see what its effect was like in the Scientology community. How big of an impact did she make? I've talked to a few Scientologists who act like she was just some nut job SP who just somehow rose to be the commanding officer of the world's largest service org and the mecca of technical perfection for decades. I never cease to be amazed by the ability Scientologists have to say someone is the most elite and ethical OT in the galaxy one day then turn around the moment that person is declared and say they were always a downstat SP and everyone knew that. Never ceases to amaze me either, Matt, but then I look at life out in the real world and outside the bubble world and I look at the way that people have these kind of cultish kind of ideas and the certainty that they're so right and so true and anybody who steps outside that side, I mean, this is tribalism defined. If you're in that tribe, no matter what it is, and you step out or you start looking at things a little differently, it's completely and utterly predictable that no matter what the subject matter is, no matter how, you know, how right you are, how wrong they are, how wrong they are, how right they are, how wrong you are, like it doesn't, right and wrong doesn't enter into it. If you're stepping outside the circle, uh, then you are the bad guy. And you're gonna have, and they have to make you the bad guy because otherwise they have to question their own beliefs. And I just went over how hard that is to do. So yeah, it's it's it is f f teeth gnashingly frustrating sometimes. Um, okay, now as far as your question about Debbie Cook's email goes, let's go ahead and go over this real fast. Debbie Cook left um, Scientology many years ago. And in New Year's of 2012, the, the New Year's between 2011 and 2012, she fired out this email that went out to like 5,000 Scientologists in good standing, because she at the time was a Scientologist in good standing. And this was a very long email with lots of Hubbard quotes in it showing how David Miscavige was off the rails, Scientology was completely going over a cliff, uh, they had all this money and weren't doing anything with it, and they were only greedily sucking up more with a high-powered vacuum, and, had, and that this was not the Scientology O'Ron Hubbard envisioned. It was a pretty powerful email for anyone who was 
familiar with who Debbie Cook was, but even if they weren't, all the Hubbard quotes in it gave it a whole lot of credibility and oomph, and it really rocked a lot of Scientologists. This went out all over the United States, I think internationally. I mean, the mailing list was quite large. And uh, it was a nuclear explosion in the world of Scientology. Debbie Cook was declared suppressive within a matter of, you know, like a day or two. Um, and uh, they went after her. Um, I was in Twin Cities at the time. I had actually already decided to leave the Sea Org. And then that email, because I had decided like a couple weeks before. Then that email hit the lines, and I was like, wow, I knew who Debbie Cook was, and I knew that she had become a public person, but I didn't know, you know, that she was going to put something out that was going to be so anti-Miscavige. It wasn't, it was not an anti-Scientology email. It was very much pro-Scientology and pro-Hubbard. It was anti-Miscavige in the direction he was taking the church. So when that came out, and I was on this mission in Twin Cities, we had about three or four people call in amongst the Twin Cities field. And remember that at this time, the Twin Cities field was like 50 people, you know, something like that, 50 or 60 people. I mean, there's not a, not a lot of Scientologists actively doing Scientology in Twin Cities. So, um, so this was a, you know, this was like, what, 10% of them <laughs> calling in, you know, something like that. 8%, uh, you know, who were like, what's this email? I don't know how many people received it, but that's how many people we found out received it. And they were supposed to be called in and, and shown this issue that came out from the church. Not an SP declare on Debbie Cook, but just a breakdown of why she was wrong and how this was totally and theta and shouldn't be looked at. And she's now declared and, you know, she's a bad person. So I got curious. That is what drove me to get so curious is this letter saying she's so horrible and awful. And I was like, well, I know Debbie Cook. I, I worked with her many years before. She ran flag for decades, as you said, and now she's the most horrible, evil person ever because she sent an email out. What does this email say? <laughs> you know? So I actually found it. I pulled it up uh, and I read it and I was like, damn, she's got some points. This makes sense. All these Hubbard quotes, she's absolutely spot on right about everything she's saying here. And that only reinforced my desire to leave the Sea Org as quickly as possible, even though I still was a believer in Scientology. Remember, the email was not anti-Scientology, it was anti-Miscavige. So, um, so that was uh, probably similarly received the way I received it, because I was a Sea Org member on mission. I was the most hardcore, dedicated Scientologist, or I was at that level and in that group of hardcore, dedicated Scientology Sea Org members, um, and I read it and I was like, whoa, this is she, yeah, she's, she's right, you know, and it was done very, 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 it was, it was worded very well to, to do that, to create that effect. So I think there were a lot of people who really freaked out. Uh, some people, of course, the, the real dedicated diehards didn't, you know, get phased by any of it as, you know, as per the reasons I've already gone over today. Um, but there were a lot of people who had left Scientology, who I'm sure got that email, or were on the edges on, under the radar. Now, this is speculation on my part, but, um, but if, you know, from what I did see in here and the feedback I've received from former members who have told me about Debbie Cook's email, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people who received it just went, uh-huh, yep. 
and it just reinforced why they were under the radar, why they weren't going in anymore, why they weren't so interested in Scientology anymore. And they just, it just, you know, firmed up their resolve to stay away. So that's, those are the effects I'm aware of on it. Of course, the church took her to court very quickly, tried to, uh, you know, persecute her for having sent that email out and instead got their asses handed to them in a really big way and ended up having to pay out a ton of money to Debbie Cook to really get her to shut up. But that was... In that context, in that situation, I don't blame Debbie Cook for taking that uh, because that was a big success uh, for her and for uh, all of us, you know, in terms of that, um, that situation there. So there you go. Jim Gattel. Chris, once the auditor removes body thetans to rid you of N theta or give you superpowers, what is to stop other thetans from entering your mind? Or is that the point? Hey, you're now clear. To stay clear, you must spend $1,000 a month on additional auditing. All right, well, OT levels 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 all deal with body thetans. And so there's a lot of money being made by the Church of Scientology over exercising, getting, you know, getting rid of these, these body thetans that are supposed to be clustered all over your body and are supposed to basically be making up your, your, your perception of your body. Uh, and you and it takes years and years and years to clear all these things out. So what's to prevent more from coming back? Well, the idea or the theory behind body thetans is I understand it based on what I read. And if, and if anybody out there who has read more about this than me or knows more about this than me wants to pitch in on, on this in the comments, I'm happy to hear uh, any feedback on this. But from what I understand, the, the, the whole existence of these body thetans relies on or is or is is created by a a traumatizing incident of such force and power that it, it really could not be easily conceived of here on earth i mean this whole notion of 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 the xenu narrative has within it I mean, if you think about it, if it was true, and it can't be true, but if, if all the events that Hubbard lays out actually were to happen, you would have a, a, a genocide, a, a galactic genocide of, of billions upon billions of people being killed. And not just killed, but then raked over the coals, dumped through volcanoes, nuclear explosions, solar wind. I mean, so much stuff going on, so much force exerted on them. Not just their bodies, which are wiped out in a nuclear explosion, but spiritually, they're, they're, you know, through this kind of energy that's used against them that somehow is supposed to be able to uh, affect a being, a spiritual entity that has no mass wavelength location in space or time. I mean, that's the basic contradiction of all of this is how do you use energy to affect a spiritual entity that doesn't have matter, energy, space, or time as part of its makeup. You know, it really doesn't make any sense. So, you know, entertaining these questions about this stuff is all fun and games to me because, you know, this stuff doesn't, doesn't make any sense. At the most fundamental level, it's complete nonsense. But going along with what Hubbard said, the thing that creates the body thetans, the thing that makes a regular run-of-the-mill Joe Thetan, you're a Thetan, I'm a Thetan, the things that, the thing that would take to knock us out and turn us into these body thetans would be a, a, a 
a level of force exerted on us in such a traumatizing way that, you know, we, we wouldn't live through it uh, here. You know, it would definitely destroy you, uh, your, your body, and it would traumatize you spiritually to such an extent that you'd just basically be half asleep most of the time. So the, the thing that, that the, and that's what makes them, okay? So the, and then they cluster together because everybody, let's say you had, you know, in this Xenu thing or some other similar incident where you're flying through space and you end up, you know, I don't know, flying through a sun or something. And there's, you know, 20 of you in the spaceship and you go flying through the sun. Well, obviously you all die, but um, through the force and magnitude of that death and that incident, you are all just, you know, spiritually just knocked for a, a loop and you're all kind of clustered together now as these, as these little, you know, disembodied spirits or thetans and you're out of it and you're out of it for a real good long time. And, and I, by the way, I, I just kind of came up with flying through the sun. I don't think that's even enough force for what we're talking about, but you know, whatever. I'm just kind of pulling stuff out of my, you know, whatever here. So that kind of incident is necessary to create body thetans. And once you're a body thetan, you're not really flitting around the universe being uh, very causative or OT or very able. You're very disabled spiritually. I mean, you're, you're half dead most of the time. So, you know, so going over and taking over somebody else's body is not really at the top of your to-do list, you see. So that's kind of that situation. Um, however... Could some other spiritual entity who is, you know, supercharged or, or in, a, in really good shape come and fight for you over your body? Sure, probably could, but who would want to? I mean, you can just go get another body yourself, you know, and, and the whole point of, um, of the death and life and death and birth and death and birth and death and birth cycle is that you're so, you know, inundated to, you're so used to it, it's, it, it's such a habit that you just, you just go get another body out of the hospital, get a baby body, and you grow it, and you live that life. And you, you know, Hubbard talks about how you say a little prayer even when you get the body. You know, I'm going to take care of this body. I'm going to be a good Thetan for this body. This is going to be great. We're going to have a great life together, you know. I don't remember the words of it, but it was something along those lines, you know, of this is, this is going to be a great life, and I'm going to make it a wonderful one sort of thing. So you're kind of committed to this whole idea of having your own body. So you could theoretically go attack somebody else's body who's already occupied, but they're familiar with that body. They've got they've they've laid themselves over that body. They've they control that body. They got all their all their little mechanisms in place to control the body. So you're gonna have to go in there and you're gonna have to overcome all of that and kick them out of there. And I don't know how Thetans fight specifically. Uh, or at least there's no way for me to easily describe it. I know I know some things, but. Now, it's neither here nor there. Uh, you'd have to be in really good shape to kick somebody else out of their body and take over and keep them away because then they'd come right back at you, of course, right? So if you're in that good a shape, of course, you could just go get your own body and, and, and you know, kind of run it that way. So I, I, that's the first thing that sort of occurs to me on that is like, why would somebody go through all that trouble anyway? So it's not something you really have to be super freaked out about or super scared of as a Scientologist. And it's not the thing that keeps people going, you know, on through the OT levels and stuff is fear of being taken over by another Thetan or something. That's not uh, not really on anybody's mind on it. So I, it's a good question, but I'm, I, I think that's about the best way I could address it.
Stephen Willis, can the almighty dollar overturn any of the rules of Scientology? I ask because it certainly seems like it can. I've heard all sorts of stories where, under David Miscavige at least, the church seems to outright ignore its own policy because it will financially benefit. Once, they apparently let a guy into the Sea Org despite knowing he'd used considerable amounts of LSD in his youth because he was well-moneyed. Tori Chrisman tells a story about her ex-husband winning $50,000 in the Scientology arbitration against his employer. As if by magic, the next day, when they tried to claim the money, the arbitration policy had been canceled from on high overnight. His employer just happened to be a major donor at FLAG. Then there's the Reed Slatkin Ponzi scheme, where he duped people out of hundreds of millions of dollars combined. He gave millions to Scientology, and after the whole scheme fell apart, the church was called upon to return at least part of the stolen money he'd given them into a victim's fund as an act of goodwill. To my knowledge, they'd never contributed even a single dollar to the victims. Is any money off limits to the church? No, man, it's not. And this comes back to, you know, Hubbard wrote a lot of policies, but the unwritten policy that guides all of it is make money. Now, there is a policy that says make money, when in doubt, make money, when in doubt, make more money, you know, and then if you have any more doubts, make some more money. I mean, that's about the clearest expression of intent Hubbard ever committed to writing. He obfuscated it with all kinds of policies about servicing the public and how to run treasury and how to do this and how to do that. But the senior policy of Scientology is get money in the door in volume. And, if, and, and then do more of that <laughs> every week, week after week after week. They're never satisfied. They're never sated. They're never, there's too much is never enough. So, you know, when that whole attitude permeates an entire organization, and in this case, it, you know, it does, Scientology, at all levels, then it's pretty clear what the purpose of the activity actually is, which is why I keep going back to Scientology as a money-making scam, which uses religious cloaking to hide its true intent. All the religious stuff is just smoke and mirrors. So when you look at it, when you, when you step outside of all of Hubbard's you know, smoke and mirrors and you look at what they're actually doing and how they actually operate, uh, the examples you gave uh, are you know, just, a, just par for the course. Those are perfect examples, and there are th thousands of them because Scientology operates always towards making money. Now, is there somebody's money they won't take? Yes, there are some people who are too conny or too much, too obviously ripoff artists for even Scientology. Um, there was a guy, Kevin Trudeau, who falls into this category. He's a guy who just scams people out of money. I mean, he's done memory recall techniques. He's done, you know, you see this guy doing infomercials a lot, or you used to see this guy doing infomercials a lot on memory, on speed reading, on Dianetics, on vitamins, on, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Um, he came in and was interested in promoting Dianetics and using it and doing something with it. And they said, yeah, great, come on in. And then they took his money and then somebody went, wait a minute, this guy is even too scammy for us. And they gave him his money back and they kicked him out because they thought he was a criminal. And I can't say one way or the other whether he is or not. He certainly has a lot of um, schemes that he tries to pull in order to get people to give him money. 
But is he a criminal? I don't know. I can't, I'm not going to say that. But Scientology did say that. And they, they kicked him out, right? So I guess that money had a little bit too much risk connected with it. And they didn't want to have anything to do with that. Those are the only times I've seen where Scientology has kicked money out of the church. Uh, most of the time, they're 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 trying to suck it up with a with a grand you know big uh, Empire State Building sized Hoover vacuum. <laughs> okay, there you go. Joseph Schlau. On one of James Randi's presentations I viewed on YouTube, he made mention that the Boy Scouts of America had presented L. Ron Hubbard with a Lifetime Achievement Award. He being an Eagle Scout. I looked it up and found it was posthumously presented in the late 1990s. Even the Scientology website listed it, but did not give the exact date. With all the scandals and abuse that had already come out by this time, I find it amazing that the BSA could have considered him one of their praiseworthy eagles. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, sure. This is actually a really good example of when organizations out in the big wide world don't do their due diligence. And that happens all the time way more often than you would ever expect it to. I mean, we've got schools right now in California and Chicago who have opened their doors wide open to Transcendental Meditation, which is the most religious practice you can possibly imagine. It literally starts with a prayer. But they're teaching this to school kids in low-income schools because that's where they want to get inroads into the schools so that they can teach Transcendental Meditation at all levels. It is a cult. And it has infiltrated schools in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Chicago. How did they get away with that? Because they tried to do that exact same thing in the 1970s, got taken to court, it got, they got kicked out. It's case law, it's record, it's on, anybody can look that up. But you know who wouldn't look it up? The people who run the schools in Chicago and San Francisco and Los Angeles where they've let these guys back in. So... To expect these guys to be, you know, to, to be doing their due diligence is, is good. They should be doing their due diligence. But you know what? They don't. So you get nonsense like the Boy Scouts of America awarding L. Ron Hubbard. Now, in the 1990s, there wasn't a whole lot of internet to do a whole lot of research on this. And I'm pretty sure the guys who were running the Boy Scouts in the 1990s had other things on their mind than, you know, fact-checking L. Ron Hubbard. The church probably came in there with a whole bunch of packs of information and how wonderful L. Ron Hubbard was, how he was the youngest Eagle Scout to ever become an Eagle back in the day. Not true. And uh, how, you know, he was a member of the Explorers Club, which is true, and how he went on to, you know, do all these great feats of discovery. Not true. <laughs> and he fought in the war and he suffered these wounds and not true. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. All this crap that they post that they piled on to the Boy Scouts, and the Boy Scouts looked at this and went, well, this looks like due diligence to me. Sounds good. Let's, let's give them an award, you know, and they just rubber stamped it. So that's kind of how that sort of thing goes on in the, in the big wide world. And it goes on all the time. And it's because people don't, they, they, just, they just lack critical thinking. And they just don't question things when they should. And so you get nonsense like that. Kirsten Sundell. Chris, thank you for your channel and blog. Although I enjoy all of your videos, that series with Sonny Pereira on Scientology, mental health, and the introspection rundown may be the best work you've done yet. The hair stood up on the back of my neck when Sonny read Hubbard's definition of psychosis, and the two of you described what happens on the introspection rundown. Surely this is thought reform at its most dangerous. My question is this. 
Given Hubbard's definition of a psychotic slash insane individual as a person who is screwing up at work, chronically ill, demanding a transfer, or wanting out, how often are Scientology staff or Sea Org members who are disaffected, exhausted, sick, or just want to leave subjected to the mental and physical torture of the introspection rundown as opposed to being put on the RPF? At what point is a Sea Org member branded as insane versus just bad? Chuck Beatty's story in the comments made me wonder if this is a common occurrence for Sea Org members who reach a breaking point and want out. Would a lovely person like Kay Rowe be branded as insane for the crime of having chronic untreated health problems? Okay, so there, you know, Scientology is an extreme destructive cult that engages in some pretty destructive behavior of sexual assault, covering up pedophilia, you know, the, the, the laundry list of things is quite long. And so it's very easy for me to understand that, you know, we could take this to the worst possible interpretation at all possible times. And that doesn't really work out in the real world. For example, you asked about K. Rowe. Well, there was plenty of opportunity in the years that K. Rowe was suffering from medical problems. And by the way, if anybody doesn't know who she is, she's a former Sea Org member who I did an extensive interview with on my channel, which you can check out. All that time, over all those years that she was suffering from, you know, fatigue and uh, chronic fatigue and, and, and problems with all, you know, all sorts of body problems, they did not consider her insane and they did not put her on an introspection rundown. And they very definitely could have done that if that's the usual treatment for somebody who is having chronic medical problems and wants to leave. That's not the case. Very, very, very few people have been given an introspection rundown over the years. I'm talking about a small number of people, like I'd say in the tens. I wouldn't say in the hundreds. I wouldn't say, certainly wouldn't say in the thousands. It's not used that often. Um, what's used much more often are security checking, pain, punishment drive type activities, sending a person to the galley. You know, when Kay and I talked about the sort of things she had to endure, I mean, one, just having to be on post and do her regular job became torturous all by itself because she wasn't allowed to get some time off in the day, go take a break, you know, with her feet and her and her other other parts of her body that were blowing up. Um, she just wasn't allowed any kind of decent schedule. I mean, so that alone becomes its own form of punishment. You don't have to pile on an introspection rundown on top of that or an RPF. People aren't sent to the RPF just because they want to leave Scientology or leave the Sea Org. That wouldn't work out so good because you have to, you know, you have to sign paperwork that says you're you're willing to be on the RPF and you're volunteering to be there. And uh, you know, and they and if somebody wants to leave the Sea Org, that's not where they're going to put them. <laughs> they're going to do other things with them, right? Um, if they want to punish somebody for having done something that they that the Scientology thinks is you know, morally reprehensible or treasonous to the Sea Org, that's when the RPF assignments start happening. And as we've gone over in my video on Thursday, they're not even doing that anymore. So, um, you know, we'll see. You know, one thing I didn't particularly mention in that video on Thursday that I should have is uh, they never canceled the RPF, so they could always bring it back. I mean, there's nothing stopping them from starting RPF assignments today if they want to. But generally, again, like I said, they wouldn't normally be assigning people to the RPF who want to leave or who have medical problems. People with medical problems don't do well on the RPF. 
So that wouldn't generally be the course of handling, right? The, the security checks, the, the, the heavy, you know, the, the labor, doing physical labor during the day. Um, as I explained on Thursday, there's the Cat B EPF, the Category B EPF, uh, where they're sending people uh, for fix-up and stuff. They'll do that kind of stuff. Now, as far as the, the, the broader context of your question, though, I wanted to make this point. Hubbard didn't define uh, a psychotic as somebody who wants to leave and is transferring and all that. He didn't do that by accident. That was on purpose. He purposefully took all the behavior of people. Um, I mean, this is I'm just my opinion, of course. I didn't talk to Hubbard about this, but it seems pretty clear to me that he looked at all the behavior he didn't like that was going on in the Sea Org around him, because when he wrote this stuff, he was on, the, on his boats and doing his little faux Navy Sea Org deal. And he went, these people are, are thorns in my side. These are people who give me trouble. These are the people who aren't getting their job done. So you know what? We're going to call them psychotic because that's what they are. Because Hubbard was so fanatical and so into his vision of you know, world peace and understanding and, and uh, through Scientology <laughs> that he thought that the best way to go about accomplishing that was punishment drive. And so anybody who was against him or against his, his effort, his sea organization, his little mini army, was clearly nuts. Because look, that we're, we're doing yeoman's work here. We're doing the sane work. We're doing the stuff that, that matters. The Sea Org is the only group on the planet that is actually changing conditions for the better. So if you're not with us, you're obviously crazy. So he had no moral qualms with calling anybody who didn't want to be there or was sloughing off or who you know, was otherwise creating trouble. Yeah, they're psychotic. you know, And off they go. So... That was kind of what I think was behind that, that policy or writing those issues about psychosis and behind what ended up being this introspection rundown, which basically just tortured people who'd had enough and, uh, and, you know, and made them even more docile and more uh, compliant rather than more sane. You know, that's really the end result of the introspection rundown. So I don't know. Those are just some, some thoughts off the top of my head about all that. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. No flash answers because I need you guys to send me some more. I got lots and lots of questions that have been asked of me that are long-form, good, solid questions, but I need more flash answer questions because I always like to throw at least three in per episode. So talk to you guys later. Thanks for coming around. Leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comments section here on YouTube. See you next week. Bye-bye.